Hello, welcome to Dark Histories. Uh, got something a little bit different today. I'm going to be on my summer break just for a couple of weeks. So I thought I'd put out a bonus episode that was a patron bonus episode from a while back uh, just to sort of cover that gap. And it's an interview I did with Professor Derek Abbott, of, uh, who's a researcher, pretty much the main sort of expert researcher on the Summer to Man case. Um, and I, I, I wanted to interview him because of the exclamation that was going on. So, yes, um, I thought I would pop up this one on the main feed now so that give everyone a chance to listen to it. I will say, before you start listening to it, it the, the whole interview was sort of done under the impression that most people, if you're listening to it, you, you have a, a kind of basic understanding of the case. So if you're not sure about The Summer to Man, um, pop back, listen to it, season one um, is the episode, it's sometime in season one. Um, or to be honest, even just like a cursory read of a, a blog or, you know, the Wikipedia will give you a, a rough idea and that would be enough to sort of ground you for the for the interview, um, sort of give you a little quick refresher or something. But yeah, the interview was carried out with the understanding that pretty much everyone knows the, the ins and outs, of the, like the rough ins and outs of the case. Um, so yeah, anyway, um, I hope you enjoy it and I'll see you in a couple of weeks uh, for new episodes after, say, my summer break. Cheers. Hello and welcome to a special episode of Dark History. It's got something a little bit different. For a long time now, I've had people email me um, to ask me to go back to the Summer to Man episode, and especially as it's a case that has progressed a lot since I first did my episode on the Summer to Man four years or so ago now. And I always wondered how I could go back to it with sort of fresh eyes and, and, and talk about an update. And so recently with the news of the exhumation, um, I thought what I could do rather than do a regular Dark Histories episode, I could perhaps reach out and speak to Professor Derek Abbott, who is the basically the, 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 the main researcher, the, the guy who's kind of pushed for the exhumation for years um, and who has done the the... The, the main legwork of the research in recent times, really sort of one of the biggest experts um, going on the case, basically. And he was uh, kind enough to offer some of his time to speak to me a little bit about the case and his involvement up until now. I did have a, a massive like ream of questions that I wanted to ask him. Um, but, but as you'll see, I think um, as we got talking, it became quite apparent that Really, he sort of moved on from the the whys and the wherefores of the case, and, and now he was really only interested in sort of who, finding out who the Summerton man was through the DNA. Um, so a lot of those sort of became redundant as we talked, but still, um, I think we still had an interesting conversation, so I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, so um, this is me in conversation with Professor Derek Abbott. You're more or less the preeminent, researcher on the case more or less like one of the big experts on the case um how was it that you kind of got your you, you know what sparked your initial interest and also what's been your involvement so far okay so what's about my original interest well um it, it's a pretty banal story um around 1995 i was sitting in a laundrette as one does <laughs> <laughs> and i just picked up a magazine and uh there was uh, an article about the top 10 unsolved mysteries in Australia, and this was like number two. And uh, I'm originally from London, um, and so I was new to Australia, and so it was the first time I'd ever heard of it. And so there were some pretty crazy mysteries in there, like number one was the... uh, disappearance of harold holt <laughs> right i was gonna say what's number one because i mean this is now you know the summer to man is i mean it's yeah, yeah. global and huge isn't it? it for those who don't know harold holt was um uh, an australian prime minister you say he was a prime minister right yeah he, 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 he's been missing to this day <laughs> and so um you know the americans uh couldn't find Jimmy Hoffa, but we lost a whole prime minister. 
<laughs> so yeah, we're we're one up on America on that score. <laughs> so yeah, this was number two. Um, I thought it was an interesting case when I saw it in 1995. It was a very short article. I didn't know much about it, and so I didn't think anything of it for years. And then I saw another article in 2007, and it gave a bit more detail, and it even published the so-called secret code letters that the Somerton man had. And that's when I got interested to 2007. I, it was there I thought to myself, hmm, this would make a great little project for my students, not to crack the so-called code, but to at least analyze it and actually say if it is a code or not. So right, that was okay. how I got started. Your, your subject is, um, is it electronic engineering or, or yeah we call it electrical and electronic engineering and a lot of people don't realize that electronic and electrical engineers we do everything because <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you think about it electronics is in everything you know so we do we know about security and secret codes because you need that for banking you know e-bank uh, e-commerce and e-banking and we and we know a lot about biology these days and uh, biomedical things because if you look in any hospital, uh, all the equipment's all electronic. So uh, we know everything. <laughs> so what did they think of it? Like when you set them this as a project, you know, were they, I mean, it's quite out there for a university project, isn't it? Yeah. and No, they, they thought it was cool to, to work on an, uh, on a code. And um, uh, I've, I've set other types of decoding projects to my students not this particular one but other ones and you know they've always enjoyed it because they've got the skill set to look at that sort of thing they've got all the maths and the statistics and stuff like that sure so it's it's perfect so then you went down quite a rabbit hole after that so how how did you get involved there was it just a burning kind of question or so we analysed the uh, the code, the so-called code, and we actually eliminated virtually all the, co in fact, all the uh, known World War Two codes. We eliminated as being those. Uh, there were there were good grounds to eliminate each one, and we were just left with the fact that the statistics of the letters um, most closely resembles the um, first letters of words in the English language. So it's just like, um, it's just like a long acronym, if you like. Right. Okay. <laughs> uh, some people do that just as a memory jogger. They just put the first letters of yeah, yeah, words, sure. something they want to remember. And um, so it's just this kind of list of items. And so I thought to myself, well, if there's any way of working out what this list is actually representing, I better go and find out more about this case, more about the history and the context. And that's the rabbit, that's the rabbit hole that grabbed me. <laughs> sure. Because <laughs> once I started looking into the history, getting old source documents about the case um, and learning about, because I was from London, I didn't really know much Australian history and local history. I started reading about the history of the place and I got fascinated. I thought, wow, this is really interesting. And so that whole rabbit hole just sucked me in. It's quite a good primer, actually, for like someone new to the country, I suppose, to sort of get in on the local history and all the rest of it, isn't it? Yeah, it was fascinating and I learned a lot. And, um, it was great. So now there's been the exhumation like recently, hasn't there? Correct. Yeah. Um, and I know for several years you, you had a petition going back about six years ago, maybe you had a petition running for that. So was, uh, yeah. was this exclamation is the exclamation now is that, are you actually involved with that or has that come about separately? Yeah. So the petition uh, was set up a number of years ago by um, somebody in it lives in another state, not by me, who's a lawyer who okay. thought this was a good cause. And um, it, gathered um today more than ten thousand signatures that's pretty good isn't it right okay um and uh, <clears throat> whilst we'd like to think the petition helps <laughs> probably the thing that really made the exhumation come together in the end is the fact that um there is a nationwide move now to uh 
identify all human remains and okay. it's called um so it's kind of um a national initiative it doesn't come from me um <clears throat> it comes from the government and it's called um operation endure right okay and um so the police are tasked with uh actually identifying all unidentified remains um my understanding is there are about 200 unidentified remains around australia and australia does have lots of um other unidentified remains in other countries uh from world war 1 and world war 2 there's lots of unmarked australian graves of um war heroes and for some decades um the australian government has put funds into trying to get those identified so that's always been an ongoing thing and now they've decided well we want to clear up all these 200 other cases here on australian soil so this is i think what's really pushed this forward there there was a change of district attorney as well wasn't there and the, the, the new one is very yeah. sort of pro um yes so um so we had a a change in attorney general recently change in political parties yeah and 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 i guess each attorney general is different and has a different view uh, of things and um and as it's part of um this uh, nationwide um operation um you know there's no no legal impediment anymore so so it went ahead and so it's led by the police um so i don't play a part in it myself so i'm i'm kind of watching from the sidelines now how are you finding that is that quite frustrating or no it's fine uh because i you know uh, i just want a solution to see a sure. solution to this no matter who does it um we have uh, I don't know if you know this but um samples of the Somerton man's hair already existed in a museum in fact the police museum here in Adelaide and so I had access to those well before the exhumation a number of years ago it was hair taken from the bust is that right correct yes so okay. for the listeners who don't know about sure. the plaster bust <laughs> just before the man was buried um the uh coroner decided that a plaster bust should be made of the man molded directly off his body so that you know if anyone was to come forward to try and identify him uh, they they wouldn't be able to see the body because the body was buried so at least they'd have the plaster bust to have a look at don't know his logic cuz what's wrong with just looking at photos why do you need to see a whole bust but so it was rather quaint that but this was the 40s so that's how they thought uh but it's just as well he did that because unbeknownst to him in the 40s because uh, they didn't know about things like dna back in the 40s dna hadn't even been discovered then um uh the uh, whole bust is riddled with the man's dna because it was um it was uh, molded directly off his body and all those bodily hairs are still jammed in the plaster so it's a fantastic source of dna so uh we've been working on that over the years and um i think it was about i think it's getting on to be about 7 years ago we had a crack at it at the university okay managed to extract a hair and had a go and we got absolutely sorry about the pardon the french but we got bugger all uh, <laughs> uh out of it um we we got a tiny little thing we we got what's called his maternal haplogroup from his hair what that means um is uh is each person um is your your mother's 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 going back for to 3000 years there's if you test everybody's maternal dna you'll always go back to some uh woman uh those number of years ago okay and there's um don't quote me but uh i can't remember the exact number but it's some number between 30 and 50 there there's those number of women that we've all descended from in on the whole planet it's amazing wow okay 
And so there's these haplogroups. And so you, you've got a certain maternal haplogroup and I have. And so I've had mine tested, for example, and um, just as an example, and my haplogroup is one that um, my maternal one is one that there's some chick in Germany 3,000 years ago. <laughs> so that's where my maternal line has come Quite from. fundamental then. <laughs> and there's no, there's no German in my recent history. So this is obviously going back a long time. And so migration of, uh, of different populations, um, so people move around and there's wars and things. And so it can be explained like that. Uh, and so his his maternal haplogroup we got was an H, and an H is very common um, across all over Europe. So it didn't really tell us much that we didn't know already, but we were pretty excited by it because um, because it meant that uh, hang on a minute, there's actually viable DNA in here sure. uh, because people had been saying, oh, there's no point trying to dig this guy up or get his DNA because he was embalmed and embalming uh, uses formaldehyde, which um, um, messes up the DNA. Um, I'm using lay language there by saying messes up. Um, the correct scientific term is it cross-links the DNA. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'll just say messes up, okay, because this is a podcast. Yeah, no, I, I think that would be just fine. <laughs> So now it turns out that today um, there are techniques which can get around the formaldehyde problem and you can still sequence DNA with difficulty, though. Uh, so it can be done. Um, it's just a pain in the bum. Uh, so the fact that there was no problem with the formaldehyde when we did get this female haplogroup from his hair was great. And then when I looked into the history of the body and how it was handled, I've, I um, realised that um, the body was actually embalmed after his autopsy because he had an autopsy. And so it means the embalming process wasn't a normal one. Normally, when you embalm somebody, you actually pump the embalming fluid through the person's arteries. Sure. In this case, that didn't happen because he had his autopsy. All his organs had been ripped, taken out and his arteries were cut open. So, um, you know, they couldn't do that. So they just went around with a hypodermic needle and just squirted a bit of formaldehyde in here and there. And so obviously, uh, because it was done that way, there were parts, there would be parts of his body that the formaldehyde missed. Right. Sure. Yeah. And this hair was proof of that. That was actually physical proof now that uh, we've got a patch of his body that's fine. Um, so we were quite excited about that. And then five years later, we had another go. This time we tried um, three hairs rather than just one hair. And uh, we got an amazing result. And, and, and this shows how the technology in five years has just changed dramatically. We got his whole maternal mitochondrial genome. So, all to put that in plain English, all the DNA that's um, solely inherited from his mother, we got. With that, is that possible? You can tell sort of where they're from geographically and things like that, or is it not yeah, quite? Yeah. So, as... unfortunately, <laughs> uh, it it's a what he got is very common all, all over Europe. And so it didn't really tell us much. Right. You can tell he, that he's descended somewhere from Europe just by looking at him. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so it didn't tell us anything, but we were sort of excited that, you know, we got the whole, the whole mitochondrial part of the genome. So that's fantastic. Um, and um, we didn't get any of his Y DNA, which is the equivalent of the mitochondrial genome, but what's inherited from the father, not the mother. And then there's a part of the DNA, uh, a third part, which are called the autosomes, which are kind of uh, inherited from a mixture of your mother and father. And it's this mixed part of the DNA that is really the most important bit because this is the part of the DNA that is actually used 
by websites like Ancestry.com and 23andMe. So for those of your listeners who don't know about those, these are websites where for paying, you know, £50, (laughs) you just uh, send your DNA off to America. Uh, um, It's not painful. You just swab yourself uh, with a little cotton bud, stick it in an envelope, send it off to America, pay pay your money, and they'll put your DNA up on this website and they'll find all your nearest cousins for you. So it's like the Facebook of DNA. And so you'll, any, anyone in the UK can do this and um, you'll see all your distant cousins all around the world. And if usually these the way these websites work is if you're, if you're connected to somebody anywhere between first and fifth cousin, you'll get to see their profile and um, and if they've nominated their email and they want to be contacted, you'll see their email and then you can just contact them and say, hey, my grandparents were blah, 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 who were yours and try and connect your family tree to theirs. So the people who are interested in doing family trees do that sort of thing. And anybody who does that um, in the UK will be amazed who they connect with because you'll see you'll connect with a bunch of people in America, a bunch of people in Australia, and all the different countries where people in the UK have migrated to. Um, So uh, it's quite an interesting journey for anyone. And so that was the DNA I was interested in getting of the Submitted Man, because the idea was that if we could get that part of his DNA and compare it with DNA on these genealogical websites, um, we could find his distant cousins, look at their family trees and triangulate back from their trees and and find somebody who's missing in 1948. And that would be a good chance we find found the guy. And then it doesn't stop there. You have to then validate that because you, you never know where that really is the guy or not. Um, mm. it could be, could it be the guy or could it be a cousin of the guy? You don't know. Um, so you, you then have to validate it, do some research, find photographs, see if the photograph matches that kind of thing. Is he the right height? <laughs> <laughs> is this person the same height? You know, if there's complete height difference, you know, that's a showstopper straight away. So it's funny how height is a very easy way of ruling out possible candidates straight away. I get so many emails from people all around the world enthusiastically suggesting that so-and-so uh, grandparent of theirs or whatever could be the Summerton man. And I say to them, uh, so what's their height? You know, and they email back. And sorry, wrong height. <laughs> uh, I, I eliminate ninety nine percent of cases just just, just, just like that. that. <laughs> yeah, just like that. It's it's why people just don't use Google and look up <laughs> the guys' height and just do it themselves without having to email me. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> but yeah. So that that's the idea. And so the bottom line is with the hair. We, uh, oh, I, I should say first, these websites um, with the with these um, with this DNA, they use um, eight hundred thousand DNA markers. To put that into context, uh, if you're a criminal and um, you know you're being uh, tried for a crime and they found your DNA matches with some blood found on a crime scene or something like that. Uh, they only use 23, it's something like 23 DNA markers. So it's tiny. So it's quite specific then, like if these results yeah, yeah. come back, like you you can rely yeah. on them basically. So, so this is like 800,000. It's a completely different ball game. Mm. And the reason why, um, why uh, like the police only use a few markers, uh, whereas for genealogical research, you kind of like um, need 800,000 is because if you're trying to, match a criminal to a particular thing you've got two particular things already that you're trying to match you don't need to go around matching eight hundred thousand. Sure. you know 23 is enough <laughs> so either the 23 matches or it doesn't you know it so so it's kind of a straight one-to-one match whereas you see when you're doing this um thing of looking for all these distant cousins you're trying to match 
Well, you're not trying to find exact matches. You're trying to just find close cousins and you're trying to find many of them. So, of course, 23 is not going to work. You need like 800,000. So that's why there's so many. And it's the part of the DNA that is uh, you've inherited from both your mother and father and it's kind of mixed up. And so that's that's, that's, um, critical there. So the reason I brought this up is because... um, when we did the hair, we got all his mother's DNA, but the, these 800,000 markers that we need for the uh, genealogical websites, which is his mother's and father's DNA intermingled, we only got about 2% of what we needed to go on a website. So it wasn't enough. But I was excited that we even got 2% because remember five years earlier, we tried a hair and we got absolutely nothing. Sure. We've got none yeah. of those DNA markets. So it went from zero to two percent is in the mind of a in the mind of a scientist that that's an infinite improvement. <laughs> <laughs> zero to two. So even though two percent was not enough, it's infinitely better than zero. So um, you know, if we try this again in a year or two, I'm pretty confident we'll get the lot. Yeah, you I was going to say, is it was it was that due to lack of material, or was it just due to the lack of technology? It's due to the very low concentration in here. It's um, uh, so we were de- dealing with very low concentration levels of that DNA. Just for the listeners' benefit, because uh, the listeners will be thinking, well, how come he got his all the mitochondrial DNA, and he's saying now the concentration levels too low for this other dna it's because it just it's just um it's just how the cookie crumbled with nature (laughs) nature just made our human cells such that our maternal mitochondrial dna has many more copies is more highly concentrated than the other dna the other parts of the dna so uh yes nature is sexist uh (laughs) you're, you're a sexist in favor of females your your female bits are actually more concentrated in your human <laughs> cells um so uh because nature is sexist <laughs> unfortunately uh we weren't able to weren't able to get higher concentration levels and and you have to be conservative uh when because you know i i could just should say okay well we'll just use more hairs and get bring up the concentration level but then you go oh well what if it then doesn't work and i've used all my hair samples um you know so you're kind of like playing this uh, russian roulette game with yourself yeah uh, you know, do do i do i go out with a bang and uh, but then have no chances of a follow-up because i've got no hair left um so I've got hair samples that I'm very conservative with and that's sort of like gold. Yeah. And so I won't ever use them until I'm really sure we're going to get a result. So every time, I suppose, you have to wait for a, a significant advancement before Correct. you want to try again, I, I guess. Um, yes, is there any chance yes. to get get more like access to the bust again or is that not likely? Well, um, it, it, anything's possible, uh, but due to you know the increased interest in the case and mm. stuff like that it might be harder now so sure. i i got it a number of years ago when the police didn't really care about the case <laughs> they go all right yeah sure <laughs> have, you could have the bust um but now i'm sure if i went back they'd be all hush hush about it so yeah, yeah. I, I have to treat my hair samples with um with a great lot of care and make sure I don't waste any. So going back to your original question, which is, you know, will I play a role in any of this? Um, And I said, well, I'll actually be sitting from the sidelines. Um, I guess the role I have is that we have this history of having done this hair. So we, we know it's feasible and we know some of the problems that the police will encounter we're trying to extract this guy's dna and um and so if they do hit some brick walls and um have difficulty getting the dna and to um identify him i think 
they will probably approach me because um, if they get some of the 800,000 markers that are needed, but not all of them, uh, it's possible that we could put our two sets of markers, the ones I've found and the ones they get, and put them together and make a, a more complete set. Sure. Um, so I think there's potential for cooperation to, um, to work together on this. But uh, that will probably happen if, if, there's some, if they hit some brick walls. But we'll see. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Avey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Okay. When I looked up, because obviously the news broke like recently about the exhumation and stuff, typically like the press coverage was just all over the shop. Like some, you read one story and it that's it. It's going to be solved next week. And you read another story and they're saying this is going to do nothing. And I, I obviously am quite a lay person when it comes to science and modern DNA. But in the sort of, sort of short to mid term, what do you, do you see there being any sort of large advancements or does it, pretty much rely on the, the quality of the DNA that the police are able to get? Well, we, we know we can get good quality DNA. It's just that we haven't been able to get it at the concentration levels needed. Um, so I'm hoping that because they've done an exhumation, they'll have access to bone sample that will be, have DNA at a a much higher concentration level and it should be an easier proposition for them. They will still have to do um, what's called ancient DNA extraction techniques because this, these are old remains. It's not like um, a modern case that they're used to dealing with. So they won't be able to use their uh, modern forensics crime lab. They will have to use something like a university uh, ancient DNA lab, like right, we have yeah. at our university. So in our university, um, we have what's called an ancient DNA lab where they do things like um, get DNA out of the hair of woolly mammoths and things like that. And so you kind of need that sort of technology for this, um, for this game. And so, um, so that's another possibility. Um, they may come to a point where they realise their extraction techniques, their modern uh, crime extraction techniques aren't sufficient and, and they'll need a university-type lab to do this right. using what's called ancient DNA techniques. So let's see what happens. Um, my, my guess is they'll probably end up needing us in the end. Fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> um so if you don't mind we could i, I thought we could I, like, I could sort of put some questions to you about your kind of research into the case originally when like you first got into the case it was it was more or less through the code um or you know the yeah. code in the back of the book um after everything you've done on that now are you fairly sure that that's not actually a code at this point or yeah, fairly sure it's just the first letters of words. And yeah. so um, it could be anybody's guess what that means. <laughs> yeah. It could be just the, it could just be the first names of horses he was betting on or who knows. <laughs> yeah. Originally, there was an inquest after the death, wasn't there? Um, and no one was really quite firm on, on what the cause of death actually was. Um, yeah. Some people were sort of saying it was poison. And, and I believe another physician sort of said, absolutely not 
And I, I read once that your theory was more that it was positional asphyxiation. Is, is that right? Is that? Yeah, it wasn't a, my theory. I, I was just talking to a modern pathologist over lunch one day and he suggested that as a possibility. Okay. And the reason for that suggestion is, um, is uh, the man was found to, um, you, um, you know, when, when um, you find dead, well, I guess people don't know this, but when you find dead bodies, you can <laughs> find patches of the skin that have all become a bit red. And that's because the gravity has sort of pulled the blood to that lowest point. Lividity or? It's called it? lividity, yes. And so the interesting thing is the guy who had his neck cricked up against a wall, so his head was vertical when he was found dead, yet he had lividity up his neck and up to his ears. So how can you have lividity there when gravity is supposed to drag it down? And so what my modern pathologist was saying is, is that his neck was so cricked that it, it had um, blocked off one of his arteries. He called it the venous return artery. And um, so the blood stayed up there. And, and, and he said if he's that cricked up, he would be probably asphyxiating and choking. So that was his theory. And so I thought, hmm, that sounds quite interesting. <laughs> but then the funny thing is that I then went and had lunch with that same pathologist uh, two or three years later and reminded him of this theory that he came up with. And he goes, ah, no, it's not that. <laughs> so that's a, that's a problem when you talk to these experts. Uh, but, but I said, but that was your theory you told me three years ago. <laughs> so so uh, I, I really have difficulty with patholo pathologists. I've spoken to a few of them and um, they kind of change their minds all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry if there's any pathologists listening to this, no offence, but you guys need to straight out, straighten out yourselves. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. So did you still look at that side of the case or, or have you more or less moved on from those sorts um, of, like... Well, because I'm an electrical engineer, the pathology side of it's not really my bag. Um, and so I just listen to what pathologists have got to say. And basically I've got received all sorts of contradictory comments from them so um i've given up on that and uh, <laughs> and i'm really just interested in the human identification side sure. because i think it's important and i think um i think develop cutting edge techniques we develop along the way with this case will help other cases around the world too sure so do you think the work that you've done up until now with like the research into it and stuff that's still going to play quite an important role outside of because you've got the dna and that's obviously important, but in a way, like the work that you've done in researching around the case prior is, is more about the painting a picture of who the person was. It, it shows people who they really were. Like yeah, you yeah. can give someone a name, but that doesn't tell you who, who they were. So if we were to find the, the name of the Somerton man, um, something I would find interesting is just doing the historical research on him once we've got a name. And finding out his history and his background, I think that would be fascinating. Yeah. And it would be interesting to see how much of it will pair up with what people have speculated and, and, and yourself. In your research, you kind of went down the route of him being a, a ballet dancer. Is that right? So I, I'm just a scientist. So all we do is we make hypothesis, we make a hypothesis <laughs> um, and, and we just say, uh, this is a hypothesis. Now let's see if there's any facts that can knock it down or not. And if it's standing up and nothing's knocking it down, we go, hmm, maybe there's some possibilities here. Um, so the ballet dancer one was one of was a hypothesis I had. Um, it still hasn't been knocked down yet, so it could be true. But there's lots of other other possibilities that haven't been knocked down either. So this is just one of the possibilities. The guy that. Um, made the plaster bust of the dead body, saw the dead body, of course, for a long time. Uh, the listeners might be fascinated to know that he's still alive and he's 101. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I interviewed him a lot when he was in his early 90s and he had all his marbles. He was fantastic. 
Could he still remember he's, everything about it? He, yeah, he he was sharp as nails. His name is Paul Lawson. Great guy. Really enjoyed um, meeting him many times. And um, it was his it was his observation when he saw the body, the dead body, when he was doing the plaster bust, that uh, the guy had very well developed calf muscles. But his point was, isn't they weren't just developed. It, it was they were much higher up the calf than you normally see in sportsmen. So it's quite specific as well. Yeah, he see, he noticed that it was very high up, and he said that you only see that high up in say ballet dancers because ballet dancers do what are called lots of calf raises, which isn't a type of exercise that develops yeah calf muscles. And so he's the guy that actually started the ballet theory. Okay. <laughs> it was his fault. <laughs> and so that was a it was a kind of a reasonable uh, hypothesis to have a look at. So I, I did myself and um, a lot of other amateur sleuths have spent a lot of time looking at old ballet photos from the forties, etc., and you know possible ballet dancers that have gone missing, and but. But nothing, nothing has come of that as yet. One of the things about going into the history of ballet and ballet dancers is it's bloody difficult. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't realise this, but a lot of ballet dancers, um, you know, back in those days around the war years, used fake names. For what purpose? Well, a lot of them were kind of, um, some of them were people that had discussed kind of uh, escape from Russia and just giving themselves a different name or um, or it was somebody that was just Joe Blow from England but gave themselves a Russian-sounding name so that on stage... Made it sound exotic. ...would be exotic mm. rather than Fred Bloggs, the ballet dancer. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So they all had these... And so actually trying to trace these ballet dancers and their histories is really hard, really hard to... <clears throat> but, yeah, nothing's come of it. We haven't found any convincing photo match or anything like that. I was about to say, little did they know that in like 60, 70 years time, people, yeah. that, that they were just making life really hard for everyone. <laughs> yeah. The other thing is, um, is you only get a good photo of match if, if the guy was a ballet star, more sure. uh, what's called the principal ballet dancer. If he was just in what's called the corps de ballet, uh, which means, you know, one of the mob uh, in the background, um, very difficult to get photos and even names of those people because back in the 40s, uh, the general chorus uh, or the background ballet dancers, their names weren't even on the program. Oh, okay. They are put in programs now, you know, today yeah. everybody gets credited and acknowledged, but in those days it was only the stars or the principal ballet dancers. So, to, to actually track him is as a ballet dancer is really tough, really tough. Yeah. So that really brought up nothing. That hypothesis <laughs> it could still be true, but it's just a really tough hypothesis to pursue. Did it not have knock-on effects? Say with um, the is it Joe Thompson's son was also a ballet dancer. Yeah, so that was a kind of a weird coincidence um, that, she, oh, for, for the listeners who don't know, Joe Thompson is a local lady whose house was literally five minutes walk from where the man was found dead. And he had her phone number. And was that in the back of the book? Yes. Yeah. So the phone number was uh, lightly penciled in on the back cover of the book, of his poetry book. And um, so the cops you know, said, okay, well, she must know something. <laughs> it's got a phone number and he's just around the corner. So, uh, but she claimed no knowledge of him, but they found her somewhat evasive. But because this was never classed as a homicide, this was always classed by the police as a suicide. Um, they never, they didn't do the Hollywood thing of 
putting in her room and interrogating her, you know, with a spotlight. And <laughs> they, they didn't do that stuff. They didn't use the heavy arm tactics. <laughs> so they, they just, they just let her go um, because this was not a homicide in their book. Um, so that's what happened. Even though they suspected she knew something, um, they let her go. So that was an interesting coincidence that, you know, she had a son who was a ballet dancer. And not only that, he, uh, he was born out of wedlock uh, a, a year before uh, the Somerton Man came to town. So it just kind of makes one wonder, well, well is Somerton Man the daddy or not? Mm. Um, so, you know, these could be um, amazing coincidences. Um or they could be, um, or there could be something in it. But you know, either way, it's amazing if um, you know it turns out the Summerton man is in no way related to Joe Thompson's son. That's still an, a wow result. It's like whoa! So that means there were so many coincidences going on here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and if he is related, it's it's in some way it's a wow result. It's it's just incredible. Uh, um, so you know, whatever whatever the truth is, whatever the DNA tells us, I think it'll be fascinating either way. Did the the man who did the bust um, did, did he mention anything about Joe Thompson? Because I believe what did he he was quoted as saying that she was like she was going to faint. Yeah, yeah. So. He, Yes, so um, so after he made the plaster bust, um, it was actually um, the police never took possession of the bust. It was always in his office. Uh, for those of you, for the benefit of the listeners, where Paul Lawson worked was just the local museum. He was uh, the guy that prepared exhibits in the uh, in the museum, stuffed animals and that sort of thing. So he had he had the skills of working with dead things. <laughs> uh, and so that's why they used him. They thought, oh, this would be, be the perfect guy to make this plaster bust off this dead body, which he did very well. So they were right about that. And so as soon as the plaster bust was made, uh, the police weren't even interested in it. They just said, okay, keep it in your office. If anyone wants to come, uh, we'll, uh, we'll bring them around to your office. <laughs> So when the police had tracked down Joe Thompson through Joe Thompson through the phone number, they dragged her into his office in the museum uh, to have a look at the plaster bust to see if she would recognise it. And uh, according to Paul Lawson, um, I think he told me this back in the day when he was only 93, <laughs> <laughs> 92 or 93, um, uh, he said to me, um, well, they dragged mrs thompson into my office and um and uh, i had a cloth over the bust and she was just standing in front of it looking down at the floor she didn't even look up at the bust and i whipped the cloth off and she stayed looking at the floor she never looked up and the police were asking her questions like you know do you know this man? Have you seen anyone looks like him before? You know, asking all the sorts of questions that you normally would. And to every answer, she just nodded her head and said, either no or don't know. Mm. In a very monotone voice, no or don't know. And that's all she said. And he said at one, and Paul Lawson said he was standing behind her when she was doing all this. And he says at one point it looked like she was about, she was swaying and it looked like she was about to fall over and faint. And so he, he put his hands out ready to catch her. And he said he didn't need to actually catch her because she didn't actually fall over in the end. But, um, but he had felt that so much that he, he pulled his hands out to do that. Uh, it was just a reaction he had. Um, and so, so that was his, his reason for saying she was about to faint. Right. Right. And he said that when the interview was over, she just about turned and walked straight out of the room without even looking at us. So he thought that was very odd behavior. Mm. 
So did the police. Either she knew something and knew his name or she didn't. If she didn't know who he was, then the question is, why the strange behaviour? Yeah. If she knew who he was and was hiding something, then the question is why? Mm. So there's a lot of whys there, isn't there? Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of speculation, isn't it? <laughs> it's very interesting. And, and so when we find this guy's name eventually, um, it might look into his history and seeing if there's any connections with her or her future husband that she did end up marrying, if there's any connections. Um, it might shed some light on what the secrecy was all about, but we don't know until we find that out, of course. Yeah, yeah it's, it, it's and a lot of it's speculation as well, and I don't know how much you want to get into that. So, yeah, yeah, it's. I think it. One can speculate the cows come home, and um, I think it's best just to let things take their course and um for the police to lead this investigation and um and hopefully there'll be a name at the end of this and um and the historical facts will will end the speculation what what do you think the chances are that they're going to align roughly with the things that you've researched like about the ballet dancer and joe thompson's son and and well um well there's so many theories and you know that's only one of them yeah yeah (laughs) There's, there's a lot of theories out there. It's like the spy theory of this theory and that theory. Um, you know, he was a sailor. He was this, he was that. So, you know, it, it might end up he's aligns with one of those theories uh, or it might be we're, we're all bowled over and surprised and it's a completely different thing and it's none of those theories. Uh, yeah. Do, do you give much credence to the spy theory or do you think that's... Uh... Well, I put it spy theory in the category of possible. Um, but then, you know, you can explain anything with the spy theory, any yeah. strange occurrence, and yeah. just say, oh, the spies did it. Uh, you know, so it's not really a useful hypothesis from a scientific point of view. And, and if you're a playwright and you're writing a play and you get yourself in a bit of a corner with the plot, you can you you um you can easily neaten it up by introducing what's called a Deus Ex Machina. Right. <laughs> uh, so spy, just introducing a spy theory just is just like not a useful hypothesis. It will, although it still could be the true one. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, there was one um, line of, of of investigation that I wondered if you'd gone down. In 1959, there was a, a piece in a, a newspaper. I think I believe it was an Australian newspaper called the Sunday Mirror. Um, and there was a prisoner um, called E.B. Collins. Um, oh, yeah. And and he he said that he knew him and spoke to him. Um, yeah. And a lot of it seemed pretty far out there but he did give some yeah, quite specific yeah. information and i wondered if you've looked into any of those like yeah um no the police here at the time and um and all the various researchers no no one's ever given it any credence right okay um, because because one has to realize this was a guy in a jail yeah yeah uh, it's a well-known phenomenon that guys in jails spin stories is about big cases uh, it, it happens <laughs> yeah 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 i mean there's a lot of reasons like it's yeah a lot of reasons for them to do it isn't there so <laughs> but yeah all right well um i'd say i don't want to keep you all day i could i could ask you all these questions but i think like i will end up i'll just <laughs> keep you here forever so uh, where can people find you if they want to have a look online um you know like oh just just google me well, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure to actually speak to you a bit about it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Cheers.